I, I think more important than than. For fantasy, you often have magic meddling in clearly pleasant. Support this podcast and keep us going. Go to everydaynovelist.com slash support to join up. Welcome to The Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of nearly 30 books, more than 30 short stories, and numerous articles and scripts and essays, coming to you from up in the crow's nest with my spyglass on this daily voyage through the dicey waters of business, craft, learning, and art in the writing life. Welcome to... The Questions, episode 987. Today we hear from Simon, who intones... I've often heard about the give-you-one rule, where readers will suspend disbelief for one major part of the story, but if you give them two, then it's often too much. But I wonder how that works with science fiction and fantasy. For example, for example, in most space opera, readers happily accept artificial gravity without having to spin the ship faster than light travel, and ships often not obeying anything near the real rules of physics when turning and moving. Mm. Others add in alien races, often suspiciously human-like, instantaneous communications, tran- teleportations, etc. For fantasy, you often have magic, meddling in clearly present gods, and again, non-human races plus a bunch of other possible ideas. Is this down to tropes? Is it that the give-you-one only applies for things that aren't staples of the genre? Or could it be that those genres are more along the lines of give-you-the-universe-plus-one-thing? There definitely seems to be a limit. While I quite enjoyed Star Trek Discovery at first, by the time they'd mashed in almost instant travel to anywhere in the universe, a Klingon being transformed to pass for human, and the whole alternative universe thing, I was done. (laughs) Yeah, I I didn't even get into it because I won't watch anything written by Alex Kurtzman. And besides, they called the series STD. And I won't pay for another streaming service. I kind of limited to Netflix, Amazon, and occasionally about one to two months of Hulu while we catch up on everything there. Yep. Okay, so... um... This is a really good question, uh, because there's actually more at work here, I think, than your question suggests, and your question is actually on to a few things. So, yes, uh, give you the genre plus one or give you the world plus one is a good way, is a good rule of thumb to navigate this with, but it's a little more complex than that. Back in the day, there's a phrase I never thought I'd use in public without cutting my own tongue out. (coughs) But back in the day, back in the 50s and 60s, Walt Disney uh, personally hosted the Disney Sunday night TV shows. Back then they called it Disneyland as a way to promote the new park that they were building called Disneyland. Uh, when I was growing up, it was called the Disney Sunday movie, and then it was the wonderful world of Disney, and it's had all sorts of titles. But Walt Disney himself hosted those for a while. And he would often open each show with a 5 to 15 minute sort of little essay where he was showing off something about the parks or something about their animation studio. And there was one piece he did that was called The Plausible Impossible, which basically gives you the secret decoder ring key to why animation works. 
Um, why is it that when you drop a 16-ton weight on a cartoon character and then lift it off, and the character walks around like an accordion, why does your mind accept that? And the reason is that your mind accepts those things which are easily plugged into pre-existing categories. So you already have a category in your mind for an accordion. You already have a category in your mind for compression. And so when you see something compressed, and then it behaves like an accordion, it automatically plugs into those pieces of data in your mind that are already in your sort of model of the world, and it perverts them in an amusing way. And so you accept it. When you're combining different things for creativity, what you're going for is something called verisimilitude. It is the literally, it's Latin for the simulation of truth. You're looking to create an illusion that the mind of the audience will accept. All of those tropes you talk about, those are pre-existing in the minds of your readers. And so you can use them as long as you use them in a way that doesn't break the reality of the illusion the, uh, the apparent reality of the illusion that you're attempting to create. The I'll give you one rule basically says that you can take one of these ideas that is not very common and run with it, and run with it to an absurd degree, and maybe even to a ridiculous degree, and the audience will put up with it. So we'll put up with a alien who can fly and see through walls and shoot lasers out of his eyes and who has bullets bounce off his chest, but we're not going to put up with, in the same story, we're not going to put up with gravity not working. Mm. Not just because it would break the specialness of the character, but because the implications for the entire world are way too big. So um, if you've got a world, if you're doing a science fiction world where there's artificial gravity and starships, well, not only is that a pre-existing trope, but it's a pre-existing trope that everyone who's got a basic knowledge of physics, and by basic I mean a not very good knowledge of physics, can sort of imagine might be possible if there's a breakthrough with quantum mechanics. But as soon as your story starts to take relativity seriously, you can't do artificial gravity. Unless the artificial gravity is part of a transformative technology that affects the shipping industry. And because if you can create gravity on a starship, you should be able to create anti-gravity on Earth. And so it would affect your propulsion and your orbital lifts and you, the way that railroads and trucks and cars and wheelbarrows work. And that, of course, would affect the economy because at the moment, the entire world is organized, believe it or not, around a very simple principle. It is 70 times cheaper to move something on water than it is to build a road and move it over land flatland. It's way more expensive in the highlands. The entire world as we know it, every war and geopolitical reality and economic reality and social organization has as one of its foundational axioms that it's cheaper to move things over water. If suddenly 
you have the ability to move things frictionlessly with an anti-gravity cart, you throw the whole world into disorder. Something I would like to, to add here is the word implication is an important part of why I'll give you one seems to give you more than one. If you accept one premise, sometimes the implications of that premise carry out into the rest of the story, and they should, but those implications might seem to the casual observer as unrelated single tropes or single gimmies, and they're not really gimmies so much as they are implications of the original gimme. Right, and so you can extend it out by making obvious that they're connected. Mm -hmm. um, now, you can really see how this dynamic works in Golden Age science fiction stories. There was a wonderful story, I believe it was by Clifford D. Simak, and I'm trying to remember the title. Um, I can't remember the title, but it was about a... Um, a there was a, a paper currency that was un counterfeitable they they had cracked the they had been a, they were able to make bills that were so unique they could be passed over a scanner and identified and no one could hack them the cryptographic key embedded in the bills was so complex it couldn't be duplicated it was kind of like it was kind of as imagine you had paper bitcoin right and you would verify it on the blockchain every time you checked out at a register hmm. so um the story uh, revolves around a cop being given a special assignment because someone had managed to duplicate this thing and duplicate it perfectly so that it passed right over the scanner, didn't show up as fake. And he goes and he, his job is to find out what it is. Now, the implication that you could duplicate something that unduplicatable is the crux of the story. What he finds is that there is this tree on an alien world that has evolved a defense mechanism that if you strike the tree with something, it duplicates a, th a thousand copies of the thing you strike the tree with as a way to confuse predators and people that would cut it down with axes or whatnot. So that by confusion, it was, oh, the, the story was called Protective Mimicry. And it was like this amazing version of Protective Mimicry, like... Uh, like uh, butterflies that aren't poisonous do when they look like like there's the non-poisonous fake monarch and then there's the real monarch and the real monarch is poisonous and the fake monarch looks enough like it that birds don't eat it, right? It was that kind of thing taken to an absurd degree. And as soon as you discover what this tree, that it's, that it's a biological um, adaptation of this tree, your mind starts to explode with potential implications. And, of course, the whole story ends up with the cop getting into a tussle with, with a native that's guarding the tree and getting thrown against the tree. And it turns out that the entire story is being told as a report back to base for this guy and his 1,000 copies who are trying desperately to secure passage home. And it's <laughs> hilarious. But the idea, if I give you one, is that you take the single idea that you're taking utterly seriously, no matter how outlandish it is, and you take it completely seriously all the way through. And the reason that they'll give you one is that if you try to do that with more than one idea, you completely break the world, and your reader will always see the ways you've broken the world where you can't. 
If you're drawing on pre-existing tropes and you're only taking them as seriously as the trope demands, you can get away with a lot of hand wavium. But mm-hmm. the moment you start to take the implications of something seriously, that's your one. Yeah. Is there any other aspect of the I'll give you one that's that's worth exploring? Because you have been known to throw remote controls at the TV or throw books across the room sometimes for this kind of thing. Or, God forbid, e-readers, which are expensive to replace the screens. I have never thrown an e-reader across the room. Comic effect. Oh, okay. (laughs) I think more important than I'll give you one is introducing your gimmies early on in a story. Mm. Um, When you throw in your gimmies towards the end of a story, especially extra gimmies, you, you sort of lose your audience because it's like, well, why invest in this story when literally anything can happen? Mm. Um, you'd, you'd, if you're going to throw a gimme in at the end, you have to set it up at the beginning. Yes. Even if very subtly. And I tend to think of the I'll give you one as the premises upon which everything else is dependent and nothing makes sense without this premise. But you don't have to explain the premise. You just have to accept the premise, and everything else is explained by the premise. Ooh, that's a good way to define it. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's very good. Um, and it, uh, hilariously, I was re-watching Dead Alive this morning, which is one of the worst films ever made. It's a Peter Jackson zombie film, which is worth watching simply for the line uttered by an Anglican priest doing kung fu on zombies. <laughs> I kick ass for the Lord! But the climactic scene of the film involves a guy trying to rescue his girlfriend from a horde of zombies across a room that is completely choked with zombies. And he grabs a lawnmower and turns it on and then holds it in front of him and walks through mowing the zombies down. And that scene only works. That's basically the entire point of the film is to get to that scene. And that scene only works because the first time we see the character, he is mowing a lawn and the lawnmower is photographed in such a way that it looks threatening. <laughs> if that shot of the threatening lawnmower ru- running over the camera wasn't there in the first two minutes of the film, that film would completely not work, as opposed to simply being one of the worst films ever made. It simply it wouldn't even be a coherent film. Um, but that's, the, that's how you can set something up subtly. You, you don't have to sit and explain at the beginning, okay, our premise in this story is you can just make it clear by implication that this is the kind of world where the sort of thing that I'm going to throw at you in Act Act 4 could happen. So that when you throw it at them, they're subconsciously expecting it. But if you throw them things they're not subconsciously expecting and you do it late in the story, you're going to lose your audience. And that's what the I'll give you one rule really means. Yeah. Thank you very much for the question. And we'll see you tomorrow. The Everyday Novelist is written by J. Daniel Sawyer and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty McKeon and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2021 J. Daniel Sawyer and the production is copyright 2021 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners.